I'm sure you've had a lot of uh, meals over this Christmas time. You've probably had quite a few visitors uh, coming into your home. Let me ask you a question. What is one of the first questions you ask someone when they come into your house? How are you? Yeah, would, you would you like a cup of tea? There's a Yorkshire person over there. <clears throat> I, I heard about a lady who was giving a Sunday school talk, and she asked that question, you know, when you invite people into your home, what is the first thing that you ask? And one of the little boys put up his hand and said, would you like a beer? Which... Uh, <laughs> probably revealed more of his home life than his parents were really willing to share at that point. But yes, we normally ask the question, would you like something to drink? Tea, coffee, maybe some water? Um, Are you sure? (laughs) A good hospitality involves eating and drinking. It's uh, custom, tradition, ritual. Uh, It's important for the relationship. Thank you. Would I like something to drink? Awesome. Try again. Think of two children playing on a, on a playground, and one little girl takes out her lunchbox, and she takes her cookie, and she breaks it in half, and she gives it to her friend. The relationship has just gone up a level. Or think about that same little girl several years later inviting a certain young man to her parents' home for a meal. The relationship has gone up a level. Eating and drinking with someone is a whole lot more than just food and drink. And in Isaiah chapter 55, Almighty God himself issues us, you and me, with an invitation. It's really an amazing invitation. It's an invitation to a meal, an invitation for the relationship to go up a level. So let's have a look at it together. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 to 13. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I've made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the evil person their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I have sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree, and instead of briars the myrtle will grow. And this will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. This is God's word. Excuse me, just one moment. Well, what a, what a lovely passage uh, to begin our year together as a classic congregation. And as always, there's, there's loads we could look at here. But this morning, I wanted to look at this passage under three main headings. We're going to have a look at this invitation. We're going to look at our response to the invitation and then finally, we're going to have a look at some reservations that we might have about accepting this invitation. So let's look firstly at the invitation that God makes to us this morning. Have a look again from verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what doesn't satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. There's a couple of things to notice about this invitation. And firstly, we should look at, well, what is it that is being offered to us uh, this morning? And in, in terms of food and drink, there are a couple of things that are mentioned. Uh, firstly, there's water. Water is the most basic drink, isn't it? If you're really thirsty, uh, you don't want a cup of tea or coffee or even a can of Coke, despite what the advert says. When you're really, really thirsty in a desert, you want water. We need water for life. And that is what God is offering us at the most basic level this morning. God is offering us life, his life. But then we read about milk, which suggests, suggests the idea of ongoing nourishment. When, when someone is dying of thirst, you give them water. But when you want a little baby to grow day by day, you give her milk again and again and again. And I think the image here is that God isn't simply there for emergencies. He's not just there when we're desperate. He's there to give us ongoing food and nourishment in a relationship over the long haul. He invites us not only to come alive with water, but to grow and to get strong with milk. And then there's wine. 
You don't give a dying man in the desert wine. You don't give a baby wine. Wine is something that you enjoy at the end of a beautiful meal, when you're sat at the cool of the evening, watching the sun go down, or when you're sitting in Kirsten Bosch Gardens listening to a symphony concert. It suggests luxury and enjoyment, even exhilaration. The picture I think that we're getting here is that God doesn't simply offer us life, but in the words of Jesus, he offers us life, life in all its fullness. But there's something else to notice about this meal, too. There's more to this offer than meets the eye. Have a look at verse 1. God says, come to the waters, but in verse 3, God says, give ear and come to me. In other words, God himself is the feast in this passage. God is offering us himself. You remember that when Jesus was on earth, God come in the flesh, he said some things along the same lines uh, to a five-time divorcee. Uh, He met outside the town of Sychar. Jesus said in effect to her, I sense that you're very thirsty, but you're looking for water in all the wrong places. If you knew the gift of God and who who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become a spring of water within that person, welling up to eternal life. Or after feeding the 5,000, Jesus spoke these words, Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. God invites us to himself through his son Jesus in order for us to have life, life in all its fullness, the rich life that he created us to have. Just one final point in this invitation as well. It's a, it's a very important one. All that God offers us here is free. It's a free offer. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy, eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. It sounds like a fantastic offer, particularly at this time in January when things are costing and it's a bit of a problem. There's a paradox in these verses. Although there's this emphasis on everything being free, yet at the same time, the idea of buying is repeated twice. So there is a purchase and there is a cost. But the cost isn't ours. Someone has paid the price for us. And that's why Isaiah 55 comes after Isaiah 53, the passage that we looked at in our last service last year, where we read that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus has paid the price, 
has done everything that is necessary for you and me to come freely to God this morning. How do we respond to such an invitation? Well, we are invited to respond. Indeed, we're urged to respond. And we know that because there are at least 12 imperatives in these verses, some that are repeated several times. The words, listen, come, buy, eat, enjoy. We're invited to respond. And I guess that fundamentally there are two responses that we could have. Either we can accept this invitation or we can reject it. Let's look at accepting this offer first. Because perhaps this morning there is someone here who would like to accept this offer for the very first time. How do we do that? Verses 6 and 7 tell us, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. The first step in this offer is simply to call. Call on him while he is near. That's a a very wonderful word, the word call, because the religious word for this is pray. But many of us think, well, I can't pray. I don't know how to pray. I don't feel worthy enough to pray. I'm not sure of the words to pray. Maybe we don't know how to pray, but all of us know how to call. And so it's so wonderful that Isaiah uses this word call. You call up a friend to have a chat. You call out for help. You call for an ambulance. You don't need a university degree or a degree in theology to call. A child can call. And that's what God invites us to do even this morning, to simply call from our hearts. You might want to say, Oh God, help me. That's a sincere call. Or God, if you're really there, won't you show yourself to me? Oh God, I need you to come and save me, to forgive me, to make me new. Oh Father, I need your guidance. Show me the way to go. God invites us specifically. He invites us to call on him. That's the first step in accepting this invitation. But there's a second step, too. If you look, second part of verse 7, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. You see, sadly, there, there are many people who want God's good gifts, but they don't want the giver. They're happy to accept things from God, but not leave anything behind. And we need God, not just His gifts. And so in order to have God, we need to take the step of forsaking. John Piper uses a a wonderful illustration to try and get this point across. Uh, He says, imagine a man leaves his wife and children for another woman. Uh, He leaves his home, he moves in with this other lady into a small flat. But then after about a month or two, he phones his wife. He calls his wife. He seeks his wife. 
He says, honey, I'm so sorry. I've made a mistake. I want to be with you. And his wife, if she's an extremely forgiving woman, might say, all right. But have you forsaken this woman? And he might say, no, I can't. (laughs) Then she will rightly say, then you are not really seeking me. Your call is empty. You will seek me and you will find me as your wife when you forsake her and all others for me alone, just like you promised. And that's exactly what's going on here in verse 7, that if we really want God, we're going to have to forsake other things. Why are we to forsake these other things? Well, well, look at verses 8 and 9. We often use these verses to illustrate how much bigger God is than us, and that's true, but their main application is this. These verses urge us to forsake our ways and our thoughts because my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So the reason we're to forsake some things is because they're vastly inferior and indescribably below the thoughts and the ways of God. We're not necessarily to forsake our ways and our thoughts because they're bad. They are bad, but they're also worthless in comparison to knowing God and the life that God wants to offer us in himself. To go back to the imagery of, of verse 1, they, they're not bread. They, they can't satisfy. And what are the results of accepting this offer of calling and forsaking? Well, there, there are many, but there are two marvelous results that are mentioned in this passage. Firstly, there is pardon in verse 7. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Some of you know the joy of asking someone sincerely for forgiveness and having that person forgive you. God offers us that this morning. He will freely pardon. It's not like we have to wrench forgiveness out of the hands of an unwilling God. Uh, The prophet Micah says this about God's willingness to forgive us. He says, who is a God like you who pardons sin? and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. So there's pardon, and there's then joy. Verses 12 and 13. You will go out in joy, be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. How many of us this morning don't want to go out from here into the new week with joy, with peace, with a mind settled to know all is well between me and God? And these verses speak about the joy of all creation in that God and sinners are reconciled. You see that even the curse has been reversed 
In Genesis 3, God curses the ground and thorn bushes arise. And now the thorn bushes are there because God forgives and transforms the lives of men and women. So we can choose to accept this invitation or we could reject this invitation. And people do this, not necessarily because they're wicked and evil. Maybe they don't even reject God's offer consciously, but they reject the offer because they simply don't comprehend what it is that is being offered to them. C.S. Lewis, the Cambridge professor and former atheist, once wrote this. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea we are far too easily pleased. And that's reflected in verse 2 here, where God asks, why spend money on what isn't bread and your labor on what doesn't satisfy? Over this holiday time, we had the privilege of going along to a a fairly fancy restaurant for one of those buffet breakfasts. And Michelle explained to me very carefully before we left, what was to happen. She said, if you take this one offer, you can go into the room on the right and take everything they have here, and you can go into the room on the left and take everything they have there as well. I don't know where my brain was, uh, but I walked into this little room, and it was nice, and there was quite a few things to eat, and so I filled up my little plate and thought, well, it's not a great variety, but I'll take three of these and six of these and 24 of those, and had my plate and went off and sat down. And Michelle came out with a whole huge variety of things. And she said to me, why didn't you go into the other room? (laughs) Why didn't you take up the offer that was there for you? And I didn't, just due to ignorance, because what I saw was was all that, that I thought I needed. It wasn't all that was offered to me. It would be even worse if I'd gone around maybe just taking a few things off people's plates that had already finished. That's that's the kind of imagery that's used here. In Jeremiah chapter 2, God just expresses his heart. He's in so much pain. He says, you know, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken, dirty cisterns, that cannot hold water. In one of his books, John Ortberg tells a a little parable that illustrates something of this. And let me read to you what he says. He says, Once there was a little young girl whose parents took her to the shrine of the golden arches. There she saw an opportunity to buy a combination of food and a little toy that someone in a fit of marketing genius named the Happy Meal. May I have a Happy Meal, please, she asked her parents. I must have it. I don't think I could live without it. No, her parents told her. 
The toy is a trivial little thing that just enabled the price of this package to be raised beyond what it's really worth. It's not in the budget. We can't do it. But you don't understand, she thought. She knew that they would not just be buying french fries, McNuggets, and a dinosaur stamp. They would be buying happiness. She was convinced that she had a little Mac vacuum at the heart of her soul. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in a happy meal. So she explained, I want that happy meal more than I've ever wanted anything before. And if I get it, I'll never ask for anything again, ever. No more complaining, no more demanding. If you get me that happy meal, I'll be content for the rest of my life. This seemed like a pretty good deal to her parents, so they bought it. And it worked. She grew up to be a contented, grateful, joyful woman. She lived with serenity and grace. Her life in many ways was hard. The man she married turned out to be a louse, and he abandoned her with three small children and no money. The kids, too, were a disappointment. They dropped out of school, sponged off her meager resources, and eventually left without a trace. When she was an old woman, social security gave out, and she had to live from hand to mouth, but she never complained. She had once had a happy meal. She would think of it often. I remember that happy meal, she'd say to herself. What great joy I found there. Just as she had predicted, it brought her lasting satisfaction. She was grateful the rest of her life. John Altberg goes on to say, does life ever work that way? You would think that after a while, children would catch on, that they would say, you know, a happy meal never brings lasting happiness. I'm not going to get suckered into it this time. But it doesn't happen. When the excitement wears off, they need a new fix, another happy meal. They keep buying them, and they keep not working. In fact, the only one happy meals bring happiness to is McDonald's. Ever wondered why Ronald McDonald wears that grin all the time? Billions of happy meals sold. Of course, only a child would be so naive. Only a child could be foolish enough to believe that a change in circumstances could bring lasting contentment. Or maybe not. Maybe when you get older, you don't necessarily get any smarter. Your happy meals just get more expensive. And we can spend a great deal of time and effort and money on things that don't ultimately make us happy because they're not true bread. I don't think McDonald's is even true bread. <laughs> How many of us spend our time and our energy and our money on things that don't satisfy? Uh, George Harrison was one of the Beatles, one of the greatest and most influential pop bands of all time. And George Harrison had it all. He had the fame. He had the adulation of his fans. He had the pleasure of mastering his craft the sense that he was um, you know, a formative influence on music. And yet in his book, The Beatles Anthology, he says this, when you've had all the experiences, met all the famous people, made some money, touched the world, and got all the acclaim, you still think, is that it? Some people might be satisfied with that, but I wasn't, and I'm still not. You can spend your whole life sacrificing your time, your family, sacrificing your soul to get to the top of the ladder and then discover you've been leaning your ladder against the wrong wall. 
So we can reject God's offer. Sometimes we can do it out of anger. Sometimes we can just do it because we're not sure what exactly it is we've been offered. We don't understand the value of it. But thirdly, in these verses, I want us to look just at one of the reservations the Israelites might have had. Uh, not that you have to make a reservation in order to get this invitation, uh, but their, their misgivings, their, their hesitancy, their doubts over this invitation. One of them we've touched on already, this doubt that God is really offering us something good. But there's another here too. You see, the Israelites are, are sat in exile in Babylon. They're in a foreign country. They've been taken there as slaves by a conquering armor, uh, uh, army. rather. Their, their city has been destroyed. They're sat in this foreign country, and they know why this has happened to them. In Lamentations chapter 3, they say, we have sinned and rebelled, and you haven't forgiven us. The Israelites think that they've blown it completely with God, that God could never forgive them, that God could never use them, and so actually it's a little bit of a waste of a time accepting this invitation because God doesn't really want them. And I wonder this morning if there might not be someone here who feels like that. You feel that God tolerates you and he puts up with you coming to church but he wouldn't really want to have a deep relationship with you. And certainly he wouldn't want to use you in his service. That's for the other people in church, the good children, God's favorite children. Folk, there is no such thing. God's invitation here is to everyone because there isn't a single one of us this morning who isn't broken. And he is fully able to deal with our brokenness and sinfulness. And that's what Isaiah is at pains to get across to these people. He says we should seek God, no matter if we feel sinful and unworthy, we should seek him anyway. And for two main reasons. Firstly, because God can do more than we imagine. Our wisdom isn't the measure of what God can do. That's that application in verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Remember once somebody asking the question, do you honestly believe that all you can come up with is all God can come up with? Can you imagine God forgiving you and restoring you? God can do more than that. As the book of Ephesians reminds us, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Can you imagine a relationship being restored? Can you imagine loving God with your whole heart? Can you imagine serving him? God is able to do immeasurably more. And in fact, we see an example of this in the second part of verse 3. That's what this passage means when God says, I'll make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I've made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. 
Surely you will summon nations you don't know, and nations that you don't know will come and hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he's endowed you with splendor. And so what God is saying here is he's saying, look, the covenant I made with you and with Moses is destroyed. That's broken. But I'm going to do something new. I'm going to make a new covenant with you, like I made with David. And remember who David was. I mean, David was a sinner, an adulterer, and a murderer, for those of us who are feeling worthy. He says, I'm going to make a covenant with love. And instead of being a hopeless, downtrodden people in a foreign land, nations are going to stream to you, Israel, because they're attracted to the God who changes you. Surely you will summon nations you don't even know. And you and I are the fulfillment of that prophecy this morning. I guarantee you the Israelites had never heard of South Africans, and yet here we are, worshipping Israel's God. And what God did for Israel, God promises to do for you and for me this morning too. Instead of being discouraged and feeling sinful, we become God's ambassadors, God's servants to change the world. And secondly, we don't have to have any reservations about accepting this invitation because God's word is absolutely dependable. Verses 10 and 11. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and don't return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It won't return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve and the purpose for which I have sent it. God's word is utterly dependable. When God says he is willing and able to change us, his word is reliable. If God's word says that he is a God who delights to forgive and to show mercy, we can be sure that he is a God who delights to forgive and show mercy. But God's word on everything is reliable, on the reality of our world, on who Jesus is, the reality of eternity. God is who he says he is. I am who God says I am. God will do what God says he will do. God's word can be trusted. So in this passage, we we see God's invitation to us. We've looked at how we need to respond. We can either accept or we can reject. And we can accept, no matter how guilty we might feel. But there's just one one final element in this text, and it's it's really important for us. If you look again at verse 6, God says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Maybe you thought you were just coming to church this morning, (laughs) but you're here by divine appointment. God offers you an invitation this morning. And this invitation doesn't last forever. It's not, you know, uh, the, the, the invite isn't there forever. Uh, we don't know when the invitation will expire. But it, one day it will expire. It expires on the day that we die. <laughs> and so it's important for us to act now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. The book of Psalms we read today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, I tell you now 
is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. There's an open window of opportunity for us to come to God this morning. If you feel a tug on your heart, it's certainly got nothing to do with me. That's God speaking to you this morning. And he invites you and says, come, come to me and experience life, life in all its fullness.